The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. Hey, let me, let me ask you guys to join me in a word of prayer before we begin our, our talk this morning. Father, thank you so much for being a good God who loves us. <clears throat> thank you for being the God that extends mercy to us in a way that it's just hard to wrap our mind around. Um, your loving kindness you actually put your hands on our life to heal us. And so I pray this morning is that if you speak to me, help me to speak to these folks in this conversation we're having regarding mercy. Help us to hear your voice very clearly. And by that, be healed. In your son's name, amen. Matthew chapter 5. Let's take a look at the scriptures. Matthew chapter 5. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I, I have told you before, and you know, this is, this is, these words are not just hard. They're impossible, right? I mean, they're, and those of us who are probably processing and struggling and trying to figure out how do we, how do we imitate the life of Jesus right now in 2009? You look at words like this and it's, you want to put it out to the culture. Like, well, this was a Jewish rabbi speaking to a Jewish audience in Israel. It doesn't really affect me. I mean, I, I, I'm an educator. I, I'm a salesperson. I'm a professional. I'm a small business owner. I'm a parent. I mean, what, what could Jesus possibly have to say to me? And so when Jesus goes up on that hill and kind of like a scene like this, you know, he's sitting down as a rabbi would and speaking to the crowd, crowd right there. The interesting thing to me is that is Jesus is beginning, beginning his new life work. That what he does not do is list out and explain a series of rituals and religion. He doesn't create Christianity. We've done that. Jesus wasn't a Christian. He was Christ, the Son of God. And so when people were listening to his voice, what they didn't hear is some esoteric, arcane sort of information about the mysterious wonders of God. What they heard was life practices that would actually change their life right here, right now. And when people were listening to it, they said, oh, I, I get that. I, I can maybe be that person. And he spoke to everybody, right? Whether it was male or female, married, single, small business owners, whether they were part of a religious sect or not, he spoke to everybody. And so folks from all over, including Greeks and Italians, the oppressing army of that nation, came to hear him speak. Because something about his words caused their souls to thrive. Uh, I've said before that you know, if you don't hear voices in your head, you're probably insane. Those of us who are sane hear many voices, and, and you're having conversations all the time. You know, and you know, it, it's only a problem when you're arguing with those voices. But 
By the way, this is one benefit of technology, of Bluetooth, because you cannot be on the phone and talk to yourself, and people think you're on the phone. <laughs> I'm just saying. See, but there's something about the voice of Christ at this moment that people realized that there was something different about it because it was beginning to sort of breathe life into their souls. And maybe for the first time, folks were experiencing a moment of hope. That the God that perhaps they've avoided and the God that they wanted to connect to, but, but you know, does he? I'll say it this way. You know what I think people's most problem is? I think it's like mine. It's not that I don't believe God exists. It's that I don't believe that he loves me. Right? I mean, when you think of your worst moments, when you think of some of your own brokenness, when you think of some of your darkest events in your life that you intentionally stepped into, and you find yourself trying to satisfy appetites and, and issues and, and anesthetize pain by any means possible, you begin to wonder, does God even love me? And I think this is really a, probably a, a beautiful picture of what mercy is all about because, yes, the answer is yes, but it's how he shows it that's really amazing. And then he asks us, look, if I've shown this to you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to show it to others because they are in desperate condition as you are as well. I was sharing with some folks this past week in an email conversation that, you know, you, you, you can't assume people are well, even if they look well. Even if they're functioning and they seem to be, you know, moving and progressing in their careers and their life, you just can't always assume that they're well and, and to never stop praying for people and caring for people. If you don't know what, what is actually deeply troubling their souls and their lives. So Jesus gives his first message and teaching, and I want to point out something that perhaps it's easy to miss. The first four Beatitudes were, seemed to be sort of a, a private conversation between the individual and God. The sense of poverty, of spiritual poverty, spiritual bankruptcy, causing a person to mourn, and then placing himself, their talents, their abilities, all their strengths under the care and control of God, meekness, and then moving to an area where I, I, I only want her because of my appetites and values are kind of morphing and changing. I find myself being more interested in the things of spiritual conversations and spiritual community. But then all of a sudden, see, this, this, is, this is between that individual and God, but it's, me, it's this idea of mercy that the, the focus shifts then from me to humanity and people around me. Because it's almost as if the person has gone through stages to arrive at this place where they can show mercy to other people. Now, I want to unwrap this idea of mercy a little bit more so we understand what we're talking about. I'm absolutely convinced because I've seen people who are remarkable, gifted, wonderful individuals that are not part of any spiritual community. But they care deeply about humanity and they do wonderful things for people whether it's providing poverty relief, whether it's establishing small business loans, whether it's building hospitals or education, whether it's caring for a specific group, ethnic class, lifestyle group, whatever it might be, they care about people. And in a sense, you can say that they, there's a, it's an act of mercy, an act of kindness. But the mercy that Jesus is talking about right here has nothing to do with that. It's similar, but it's different. And this is why. In this language of the word blessed, the simplest English translation is the word happy or fortunate. This word blessed that Jesus uses in this first teaching is more Greek than anything else. In fact, it's often found in Greek literature. It means to be happy and to be fortunate because it was caused by a God. 
So it's a unique state of being. It's found there. It's also found in a, a very um, important piece of Greek literature known as the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, the more common language, Greek. And the only other place where it's found in ancient literature is right here when Jesus uses the word. See, it's not that you just feel good, but there's a specific state of pleasure and joy and, and fortunate state of being because it's caused by God. Now, what, what strikes me about that is knowing that where Jesus grew up in Nazareth, two miles west, was a town known as Sephora, a beautiful, elegant Greek town with the colonnades, which was known for its plays. And so I find a man like Jesus, this rabbi, who would have had exposure with the Greek culture and often uses some of the words and languages in his teachings. And so he uses this word out of Greek culture to explain this is the unique state you can be in. Listen, I know you folks are devout. I know you guys go to the temple. I get all that. But, but let's, let's be frank. Sometimes that just doesn't cut it, does it? I mean, we, we do it out of duty. We do it out of fear. We do it out of maybe sometimes to keep in touch with the God that we know that's there. But, but the idea of devotion and love is sometimes absent from us. Or you walk out of there wondering... I just don't know if I feel any better. So Jesus points out in this first inaugural address to his followers, look, there's a unique state of being, of pleasure and joy and happiness that is caused by God, and here are the things that will bring that to happen. So the first four Beatitudes are between the person and God, and this, this, this fifth one begins to address humanity, how I treat people. Now, let me also then go further here, what, what, say what mercy is. Mercy is part emotion and part action. Mercy is concern and care for folks that are in misery, they're, they're, they're in pain, and, and it's the action that says, I must stop it. I have to relieve it. I have to take steps to personally sacrifice to relieve their misery or a person's misery. That's mercy. It's not just the emotion of, oh, that's a shame. You know, we, we do that, right? You go to Starbucks, order a cup of coffee. You see the New York Times or the LA Times. And there's a front page picture of some bomb that went off in the Middle East here or some desperate situation in Ethiopia there or some flooding thing that happened in the Midwest or whatever it might be. And you think, oh, that, that's too bad. It's a shame. And we, we, you give it two seconds. I do. Listen, I'm not speaking as if, you know, I don't. I'm telling you, I do. But mercy says, not only is that too bad, but I have to stop and, and participate in the alleviation of that misery. I'll, I'll change my addresses. I'll move to another country. I, I change my career paths. I surrender my goals. I, whatever it takes, I have to stop it. That's mercy. And then the ultimate expression of that would be, of course, Christ. God in Christ looking at humanity and seeing the distress, seeing the misery, seeing the brokenness, and says, I must relieve that suffering. So I'll sacrifice my life for you. More than that, what mercy is, it's not grace. It's another word that's often used in the scripture, and we use it a lot in our spiritual language. You see, grace is concerned with justice in, the, in, a, in some level. There's a forensic sort of application of the word grace. If... Um, if we think of our own brokenness and evil and darkness as moral violations, as a crime, 
then we have to deal with the judge, right? Metaphor and language that comes out of the scripture. But, but, but the penalty for the crimes are un, unpayable by us. And so the judge himself says, I will pay the penalty for you and invite you into my life so that there is reconciliation. That's what grace is. Grace is involved with justice. But mercy is different. Mercy then is involved with the collateral damage from a life that's been lived disconnected from God. Now, if you're thinking you know, of, the, of the addict and the, the, the homeless guy, or you, know, you might be separating this out from our lives because the, the damage actually happens in our own souls and our, our emotions. Just the tragedy of not living life to your fullest potential. The, the damage that you intentionally did, stepped into, willfully knowing this is not healthy, this is not right, I'm still doing it. Some of it was because you just had to anesthetize the pain and the emptiness and, the, and the, the just, you know, just the stuff of life. Because we all go through life cheating, right? Let's be honest, we all go through life cheating. You know, when someone says, ah, oh, you Christians are brainwashed and religion is a crutch, uh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, duh. You know, <laughs> we've never denied that. You know, I am not denying the fact that I cheat to go through life. I rely on Christ to get through it. I'm down. I mean, you know, <laughs> okay, you pulled my covers. Wow, you know. And mercy is concerned not just with the damage that was done because of our intentional volitional actions, but even what was done to us by people who should have known better, by people that we allowed to speak into our souls and they spoke such damning, disparaging, discounting words that till this day your soul is slightly shriveled by those comments made to you. And you've actually thought that what the worst that somebody identified in your life is you. Sometimes, you know, I'm a parent and so I recall when my kids were little and cute, I recall thinking, I'll never do the things my father did. You know, he, he, he had a, a violence in his life. He was a sentimental man that wore his emotions very close to the surface. I thought, oh, my kids are lucky. They're going to have me as their dad and Lily as their mom. And, you know, we're cool. And some of you guys have seen our photos from the 70s. And, you know, that wasn't true. <laughs> we put the yes in polyester. And uh, I, it's... Uh, no, it wasn't nice. It wasn't. <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't good. Uh, <laughs> some of you who've been to my home, you, you love that photo of Lily and I uh, when I was wearing those big glasses, <laughs> the Sally Raphael specials. See, the thing is, I was a test pilot for the Air Force. I was already goggled up, never knowing when I was going to have to fly out. Lily looked cute. I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, I just, you know, I actually remember thinking, I looked in the mirror thinking, yeah, you know, what was she thinking? <laughs> I, love the, I love the mutual dialogue here. Thank you very much. Uh, I, you know, now take my picture. Oh, forever captured on celluloid. Oh, man. any rate, the point... Thank you so much. Because I haven't said that before. Is, is that mercy and grace is involved with both aspects of our lives in reuniting, restoring, and reconciling us to God. See, for all of us, 
our search is going to end where it started, with God. Some of you have intentionally, consciously been thinking, I've got to try anything else but him, because he won't like me. Or some of you, perhaps maybe because of parents, and you know, they said the most horrible thing to you in a moment of anger and frustration because they were human and they were trying to process their own mess and we screwed up. So on behalf of parents everywhere, listen, I'm sorry. I, I know I've done it to my kids sometimes. But the fact is you are not defined by your worst moment. You are not your worst moment. You are a human being who bears the image of God on his or her soul, uniquely crafted and designed for beauty and for life and to participate in a healthy way with humanity. And God calls you into his life to show mercy through you first so that others can experience it too. So at any rate, mercy, you know, mercy only matters when you don't want to show it. I mean, you have... <clears throat> Lily and I were the kind of parents that believed our kids and our dogs were only cute to us. So we never imposed them on people. We were not those people that when you walked in, look at our kids, don't you want to hold the baby? No, I don't. <laughs> you know, I, so we just felt you know, if people want to reach out to our kids or our pets, awesome. But we're not going to you know, do that to people, all right? And there were times that in that action of caring for our family and, and people would come over and guess, somebody would break a plate or drop something, and you got it at Target or you got it at Pick and Save, which is now what, was it Big Lots, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, yay, Pick and Save Savers. And uh, so if someone breaks something that doesn't matter to you, you go, oh no, please don't worry about it. And, and they're distressed, oh, I broke your, your vase or your vase, hey, vase a vase until I broke it. And, and or, <laughs> No, it's a puzzle. And, uh, but, but, you know, see, it's not mercy when something doesn't matter to you to say to someone in distress, oh, that's okay, don't worry about it. It's, it's cool, we're good. No. It's mercy when someone breaks your Lennox dish. Then it matters. When someone breaks that crystal glass, when someone breaks that important thing to you, and you try to, no, it doesn't matter, it's okay. See, mercy matters when it matters, when it costs. Let's take a look in the scriptures at someone who does mercy incorrectly. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? I have to, as I'm reading this and, and kind of feeling the story of Peter and feeling him, I'm, think, I'm sure he was looking for a, a, a pat on the back, you know, an actual, oh, you did a... That's awesome, Peter. You're willing to forgive people up to seven times. Good for you. You know, you're a great guy. So Jesus replies, no, I tell you the truth. Not seven times, but 77 times. See, now I'm thinking seven times is pretty remarkable, right? If somebody takes advantage of you, does you wrong, I mean, don't you give people like two chances? The third time you're like, eh, no. Hey, can I borrow 10 bucks? No, you still owe me 30. I mean, you, you know what you're not talking about? Can I borrow your car, return it with gas? No, you won't. Car's not working. You just drove it home. It's not working now. I just turned, you know, I mean, you, you, you begin to push back on people you know have taken advantage of you and you've forgiven, you've let it go. 
And so seven times, that's, wow, the eighth time, you figure, that's, that's, and she's, oh no, it's 77 times. And so he goes on with the story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So Jesus is beginning to unwrap the 77 times thing. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now let me stop you for just a moment. This is a king who has a servant that the servant owes 10,000 talents of silver. Okay, approximately a million and a half to two million dollars, like today's money. The servant, think of the guy, anybody here work at Starbucks who's a barista? Okay, think of a guy like Patrick who's working minimum wage plus and tips and gets mark out once a week. Okay, you have awesome, I love mark out. Okay, so how is he supposed to pay back a million and a half, two million dollars? He can't. And I've never understood debtor's prison. Because if you can't pay the debt when you're free, how are you supposed to pay it when you're in jail? On top of that, I, you're a servant. What did you do with a million and a half dollars? What are you, an executive with AIG? Woohoo! <laughs> Where's the money? I mean, I'd be thinking, I'd be phoning that in, flying over, can't pay the debt, I got my private jet, you know. Somehow, and remember, this is the metaphor for us and God. All the potential of all that that servant had was lost. And he owed his life to the king. And he begs for the debt to be canceled, and the king says yes. Now, you would think the reaction of the servant would be like, oh my gosh, that was so cool. I'm so glad this has is, this is worked out the way it did. I just love people and humanity. Not so much. Verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. It's just a few dollars. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to, the, to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Same words. But he refused and instead he went off, had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called him in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy? on your fellow servant just as I had on you. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he, until he should pay back all he owed. And this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers from your heart. You know, and you read those words and metaphors begin to break down at a certain point. But here's what I'm reading from this. Is that sometimes when we hang on to this bitterness and lack of forgiveness... We place ourselves in our own prisons. I mean, we really are. This is almost like a, like a self-inflicted wound. You're a spiritual cutter, if you get that. 
and I know that sometimes that comes out of self-loathing and, and anger and frustration and, and not knowing, realizing how much God loves and cares for each of us, each of you personally, uniquely. And so, you know, be the last shot even on your own body. But this is what happens to a person that refuses to, to give mercy, the mercy specifically that they've actually experienced from God. It's like a spiritual cutter on their own souls. And so the torturing in the prison really is what you do to yourself. It's a, it's a self-inflicted wound. Jesus is going to give another story of what mercy does look like. And I think maybe to feel that I wanted to, um, oh, I don't know. I, I'm trying to pick out two groups that would be rapidly against and angry. You know, I don't know. Think of the campaign manager for President Obama and the campaign manager for Bush. Our, I mean, you know, some skinhead and a, and a black guy. I mean, this is the kind of tension of the main characters in this next story. It's very racial, the tension. So when Jesus tells this story, this is what you have to feel when he's telling this next story. So let's go to Luke. Um, and let me see here. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus is giving a discussion regarding lifestyle and choices and following God. And verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when he says the law, it's not the civil code of a nation. This is the law regarding the religious code of the nation, their spiritual life, okay? And so Jesus, answering a question with a question, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, wow, you've answered correctly. Now go do it, and you'll live. Verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, well, then who's my neighbor? And then in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. So now let me paint this picture for you. Jerusalem is up on a hill, about 2,000 feet. So no matter, when you're, no matter where you are, you always come down from Jerusalem, no matter how you travel. People, that's why no matter if you're going from the north to the south, you're always going up to Jerusalem. Jericho is a little bit to the, to the west. Kind of treacherous area. And you know, since we're on the same latitude with Israel, Los Angeles, Southern California, you, you know, it, it's a desert area. So I guess what I picture is somebody... Some of us, some of us guys, if you've been in fights or you've seen fights, you know, a um, person with their swollen eyes or a busted lip and the blood and the mess, and then you have to picture the sand and the sweat and, 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 and being maybe half naked and, and robbed, uh, you know, clothes torn. I mean, that's the picture. That's somebody, and, and they left the guy, quote, half dead. All right? So now three people are going to pass by and, and see this scene. And Jesus is going to talk about their reaction to him. A priest happened to go down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So he avoided him altogether. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man in his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. 
The next day he took two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for extra expense you may have. So Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law or the one who had mercy on him? Jesus said, yeah, you're right. Go and do likewise. See, I think what we miss sometimes with the idea of mercy also is that we just want it for our friends. Just want it for us. And we've made Club Jesus some weird thing that you have to dress a certain way, vote a certain way, live a certain way to fit in. We made it weirdly exclusive. Folks, I want to drive this into you because I feel this so intensely. We have to be a place that's safe and inclusive for everybody, no matter who they are, what they call themselves, or where they're from. We have no right to call ourselves followers of Christ if we withhold kindness and mercy from anyone. And this is exactly what Christ is trying to drive that discussion to. If you've experienced it, if you believe it, if you have any comfort from it, then share it with other people, no matter who they are. Mercy is outward. Listen, I know the conversations and, and, and the connection with God is, is personal. I get that. But it's never meant to be private. It was meant to be a public life. And I, I believe, and I'm, you know, I'm just thinking that it matters more if folks who don't call themselves Christians think we have something to offer. And we may be, as individuals, as human beings, wired for fairness and revenge. And by the way, I, I don't think fairness is much, much better than revenge, right? Fairness is almost like revenge. You know, if Austin and I have an argument and he speaks ill of me, fairness would be to treat him the same. I mean, if you want to ruin any friendship, if you want to ruin a marriage, if you want to ruin any relationship, employer, employee, I don't, teacher, whatever it is, you want to ruin a relationship, just be fair. Right? Treat like for like. But somewhere, someone has to be the, the, the spiritual person who's connected to Christ in a healthy way and shows mercy to reconcile, right? Then that's, that was supposed to be us, who, people who call ourselves followers of Christ. It, it, it ought to be impossible for us to have experienced God's mercy and not show it. Let me take you to one last passage as we close this morning. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Paul has spent the first eight chapters breaking down theology and explaining some very detailed aspects of connecting with God. And in the next three chapters, he talks about future events and things that are happening on with Israel. And, and then in chapter 12, he shifts the conversation to a very practical application. Like, okay, now all this is true, so here's how you should live. Okay? 
Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, and look at the phraseology here, in view of God's mercy, to offer your, your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and to approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I, 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 I'm one of those, anybody an English lit major, English teacher? Ah, okay, that's right, Miss Jackie Acosta. See, I, I, I'm a deconstructionist. I like to go back to the original intent, you know? And, and so I think, okay, we have this Christianity here in Southern California. It's, it's Southern Californiaized, it's Americanized, it's you know, Europeanized, it's Westernized. What did the first people hear? What did, what did that first audience that got that letter, got the scroll? Oh, because that's how they read, apparently. Like that. Anyway, so um, what did they hear? Who were these people that Paul wrote this letter to? What is a living sacrifice? But these were folks who were accustomed in their religions, regardless of what it was, of sacrificing animals, money, food. This was... This is not uncommon, and it was often burned, taken, but either way, the sacrifice meant that you lost it. It was gone. Gone, gone to serve the gods, right? I mean, there was many very bloody religions in that first century. And, and Judaism was not, one of, was not just one of them. It was one of many. I mean, talking about bathing in bull's blood, the honestness, I mean, it's just... It's, it's an interesting study, but here's my point. They understood what that meant. We, we, you know, because we, we buy our meat prepackaged. We don't, it's hard for us to not feel this, but most temples were essentially a butcher shop. The priest had bloody clothing and bloody hands from doing the sacrifices. And so what he says, I don't want you to be dead. I want you to be a living sacrifice. The person you once were, that person is gone, dead, crucified with Christ. And now you're alive to God. And have your pattern of thinking not just be like water, taking the path of least resistance, but intentionally place yourself in the presence of Christ to listen, to hear, to know what he would have for us to do. Occasionally people ask me, you know, I'm a pastor here, Octavio, what do you think is the will of God for my life? I take that question seriously. And after thoughtful reflection, prayerfully considered, I tell them the same thing. I have no clue. <laughs> I know he wants you to be healthy. I know he wants you to be connected to him. I know he wants you to do good things to people, no matter who they are or where they are. But after that, you have to ask him. Because it's his plan for your life that he's designed beautifully for you. And you could hear it and experience it. In fact, we could be connected to the God that's connected to everything and know and understand what we ought not to have known or understood because he's speaking to us. And wouldn't it be great to be a place known as being unexplainable? Because these people... I don't get them. They care for people. 
seem to understand things that make sense, but I didn't figure it out. And I begin to know God's will. But the phraseology of Paul here is that it's, it's, it's an intentional effort. It doesn't just, you know, come. But you intentionally place yourself in that moment to begin to be able to learn and hear that voice of God. Because there's several going on in your heads, right? They are mine. It's like a party sometimes. <laughs> Look, let's be people that are known for showing mercy, that are known for caring for people. I'm, I'm praying that some of you, that God actually wants you to be that person to stop suffering won't be comfortable until you are stopping the suffering of other people's lives. It has to compel us. What are we calling people into? Just to believe us? Just to believe our set of beliefs? I don't have a need for that. I mean, I know I'm right. I don't have to have anybody else believe they're right. I'm right. What are we calling people to? Let's show them what we're calling them to by living a life of the merciful. Hey, let me pray with you guys. Father, thank you so much for restoring my life and restoring the life of my friends here. And I'm praying for the man or the woman that just, you know, feeling a little bit distant from you, that they wouldn't understand and know how much you care for them and how much you love them. You love them. in all of their mess and just weirdness that's happened and they've done. You love them. And you wish to place your hands on their life to embrace them and show them mercy. Help us to be healed by your love for us. Help us to be healed by your words of comfort to us. Help us to be healed as we show mercy to others that's been shown to us. Help us to be people who are known by our acts of kindness and mercy, by the mysterious, by the unexplained, as we follow your Son. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.